30 years ago, I don't think that word would have been in there. It would have been, he is found by those who seek him. <laughs> Duh, everybody knows that. But we know in our times, and we know in our culture, and in America, and kind of the somewhat you look at polls, and the retreating of faith, and, and the numbers are slowly regressing as for church attendance and belief. So this person very much in tune with that adds, he still is found by those who seek him. Well, we're going to talk about that this morning, and we are going to be encouraged by this. We can still be encouraged by this message. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 and 2. It's Matthew's birth narrative. It's the story of Jesus' birth in chapters 1 and 2, and uh, it's really kind of cool. Matthew is this brilliant writer. He's very purposeful in how he orders his gospel. Uh, that was one of the first things I learned about Matthew, is that when he groups things together, he groups things together for a purpose. They have a, a commonality. That there's a theme he's trying to weave together by putting things together. And this is definitely the case in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew. And so we're going to look at it and be encouraged this morning, okay? So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It'll be great if you have a Bible because you'll be able to flip back and forth and see kind of the different connections. But uh, if you don't have it, that's all right. We really don't have any passages. We have one passage up here on the, on the uh, board, but, uh, uh, but the rest is really just in your Bible. So open it up if you've got a phone as well. Uh, the first thing you come to, if you notice Matthew chapter 1, is a genealogy. Now, we won't go through and read all the names, all right? It's Christmas. We don't need that right now. But if you were to go through that genealogy, you would notice that Matthew includes five women. This is rare. This is not common. This is actually uh, so, so rare uh, that it has to beg the question, what was Matthew uh, doing? Why did he do that? Again, this is a purposeful guy. He doesn't make mistakes. He's not doing things off the cuff. He has very much an intended purpose behind it. All right, let's look at these five women. The five women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, or as I like to say, shower Sheba, and Mary, all right? You got these five women, <laughs> all right? And he includes them in the genealogy. Now, what was neat about that? Well, let's look at who these women are, and I think that will tell us why Matthew put that in. Tamar, if you'll recall, Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons, 12 sons of Jacob, all right? Named Judah. Tamar is his daughter-in-law. Tamar married one of his sons, all right? His son was bad, so God, uh, the kind of phrase, God took him away, God killed him, I don't know, it's, he died, all right? It's kind of phrased interestingly in Genesis. He died. So Judah, being the patriarch, take care of your, uh, you know, daughter-in-law, essentially. She'd be made a widow. In that custom, she would then marry the next single brother, all right? So Judah has another son, all right? They get married. He's also wicked. He dies. So what is Judah supposed to do? He has a third son. He's supposed to pass Tamar off to the third son. He doesn't do that. So he leaves her as a widow, which essentially in that culture is social suicide. You've completely thrown her to the margins, and it's really kind of a horrible thing. He actually really wronged her in this way. So what does she do? She dresses up as a prostitute. Judah, going to the city, sees her, sleeps with her, all right, and then convicts her later on of being 
you know, conceiving out of wedlock when he didn't realize that that was his child and it was him who did it. And he eventually ends that episode with, she is more righteous than me. It's a very confusing episode, all right? And there's a lot to be said more about that. And it's actually quite deep why he says she is more righteous than me. We can't get into this because I'm trying to be quick this morning. But notice that she is in the line of Jesus. She is in the line of David, of Abraham. God uses Tamar. Rahab is a prostitute of a foreign nation. She's not even an Israelite by birth. She's a prostitute in Jericho, and she houses the spies that come to scout out Jericho. So she's kind of a traitor to her own people. That's Rahab. She's in the line of Jesus. Ruth. Ruth also is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She is not an Israelite by birth. Again, but we all know Ruth. Ruth's amazing. Can't say anything bad about her. The only thing is, she's not an Israelite by birth. Bathsheba. We all know that, right? They're her and David's, you know, fling in the spring, right? We all know about that, all right? Give her the most benefit of the doubt. She didn't really have a choice. The king is like, hey, I'm going to do this. This is what's going to happen. So, but that's her. And then Mary. And I think one commentator said, this is what, this is what Matthew's making the point, that God uses sinners, outcasts, and foreigners. And I put women not as like a, duh, all right, I put it as Matthew is making a very progressive social, uh, not agenda, but he's making a social statement at the time saying, hey, women are important. Women are very vital. And look how God is using women to carry out his saving purposes at that time. Obviously, Mary can't get any more involved than carrying the child of Jesus, right? And so at the time, this is an extremely progressive, very, very progressive statement, and Matthew makes it. And he's showing us that, that God uses sinners, outcasts, foreigners, to carry forward his saving purpose. Boy, we see this in Jesus' selection of his disciples. Fishermen, these were not the cream of the crop. If they were, they would have already been in the schools, training to be priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, but they weren't. They were tradesmen, tax collector a social pariah in the Jewish community, Matthew himself, Mary Magdalene, Paul, and the billions of Christians that have called Jesus Lord over the last 2,000 years can all attest that God uses sinners, outcasts, foreigners, you name it, to carry forward his saving purposes. Love that about Matthew. Let's continue on. Verse 17 really sums up the genealogy perfectly. All right, and this is the one verse we're going to look at, verse 17 of chapter 1. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, right off the bat, there were not 14 generations. <laughs> okay? So undoubtedly, Undoubtedly, there's not 14 generations between David and the exile. Why can I say this? If you go and read First and Second Kings, you'll notice that Matthew omits certain kings from his genealogy. All right. Now, before we freak out, or before we accuse Matthew of being a bad historian or a liar or a scoundrel and trying to manipulate us and trying to find something that's not there, note genealogies were so so commonplace in that time and period. 
um, your greatest identifier, your greatest identity would be who are you connected to in your, line, in your lineage. I would be known first and foremost in the community, if this was first century, as Kelly's son. That's what I would be. That would be like my first name, Kelly's son, Kelly's son, Kelly's son. Middle name would be Grant, and last name would be Landenberger. Like, you kid you not. Like, you wouldn't really, in our individualistic society, I'm known as Grant, right? Grant, 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 if you remember which brother I am, right? If you're familiar, you know me. But a lot of people are like, you're one of those Landenbergers, right? Right. No. In that period, it was all about who are you connected to? Who was your grandfather? Who were you connected to of the 12 sons of Jacob, first and foremost? Who were you connected to? These genealogies were kept. That's why you read Genesis, genealogies. You read uh, Numbers, right? Genealogies. You read First Chronicles, genealogies, right? You read Luke. Luke has a genealogy. These genealogies were kept so, so well. Anybody and their mom could have gone down to the temple and been like, let's see if Matthew was lying to us. Let's see if Joseph was actually in the line of David. And they could have looked up the records any day of the week. Probably not the Sabbath day. All right? And they could have seen whether or not Matthew was lying or not. These were kept so well, Matthew was not lying. All right? They could have seen it. It was true. Because it was true, now he could take it and make a literary device. He can make a literary kind of, uh, use a literary device to communicate a greater message. What is that greater message? 14, what's the significance of 14? Seven times two. Seven is the number for Jews. It is like, ah, right? It is like anybody in the Jewish community have been like, oh, 14, oh. Oh, I totally know what he's doing right there. Seven's the number. Creation, right? Seven days of creation. The week, seven. Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Seven is the number. And so what Matthew is doing is he's making a connection, building off of that literary theme of this idea of number seven by connecting it to 14 and showing 14, 14, 14. He's drawing this connection to God, right? He's doing this very beautifully, Genealogies were manipulated like this all the time because, again, anybody could have gone down to the temple and seen if this was true. So they assumed the truth, not assumed, but they knew the truth. He was connected to David and Abraham. So then he'll omit certain names to drive home the point just to further that this guy is connected to God. This guy's a fulfillment. This is the number seven, right? It's beautiful. It's very beautiful. Really the important thing to come out of genealogies is who is being highlighted in the genealogies. And as verse 17 shows us, it's Abraham, David, and it's the exile, right? And then the Messiah's connection to all these three things. So as you'll see in your outline, let's look at how does the Messiah, this Jesus, connect to Abraham, to David, to the exile? All right, let's start with Abraham. Ooh, Ashley. I'm going to put you on the spot. All right? I think you can do it. Ashley, do you remember Genesis chapter 12 when God makes a covenant with Abraham? Do you remember what he promises Abraham? Any sort of things? Do you remember any of those things? I know I'm putting you on the spot. If any one of them, throw anyone out there. Yes, you'll have, you have descendants of many, yeah, as numerous as stars in the sky, exactly. Any other ones? 
That's all right. You're good. One of the most famous ones, so he promises descendants, the numerous stars in the sky, promises them land, right? It becomes the promised land, right? He says, I will make your name great and your nation great, right? And then he says this, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Who comes to visit Jesus at the beginning of chapter 2? Magi. Ooh. People not from Jewish nation. People from a different nation. Recognizing the Messiah, this lordship, this kingship. Matthew is a great writer. He is a great uh, great at putting things together. Great, again, as I said, he's driving home themes and he'll combine things together. And he's showing, look at this Abraham promise fulfilling figure. Look at it. He was going to be a blessing to all nations. And now we see it. We see these magi coming to see Jesus. You read the rest of Matthew's gospel, you read any gospel, and you will see this, that all nations are being blessed by their interaction with Jesus. The magi. Right? Jesus heals the servant of the centurion, right? You remember that episode where the centurion's like, you know, Jesus, I'm a commander in the army. I tell my soldiers, go do this. You just say the word and this will happen. And Jesus is like, boy, I've never seen such great faith. I love it. Your servant will be healed. And his servant was healed, right? Centurion, a Roman, a Gentile, like he's the oppressor of Jesus' people. This is like the enemy of all enemies to Jesus. And Jesus blesses him and heals his servant. You have a Canaanite woman, another similar episode where he heals her. She's a Gentile. She worships, worships other gods, and Jesus blesses her. Jesus reveals himself in John's Gospel, the first time in John's Gospel, as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. Again, a Samaritan. You might get, actually get worse than Rome. Samaritans to, to pure Jews, Samaritans might actually be worse than pure Romans, all right? they were the people, well, we don't have, to get, don't have to get time for that, but they just did not like them. We see Jesus fulfilling this. He's going to be a blessing to all nations. Your point is Jesus was and still is a blessing to all nations. Let's look at his second connection, his connection to David. I cannot tell you the significance of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's probably the most probably the biggest, you could argue the biggest passage in the Old Testament. You really could. I mean, there's nothing bigger in the Old Testament than 2 Samuel 7, especially as it pertains to the New Testament. So maybe in that sense, as it pertains to the New Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the biggest passage because it's God's covenant with David. And again, we can't get into it, but essentially what God promises David is that your descendants will reign, they will have a throne, they will have a kingdom, and that kingdom will endure forever. Your kingdom, your descendant, will endure forever. This was picked up in the theology of the Messiah, right? It had to come from the line of David. That's why Matthew shows the connection to David. Their king will come, and his kingdom will endure forever. Matthew is making this connection. He's saying this king has come and again, as you know about the Gospels, how many times does Jesus talk about a kingdom? <laughs> how many times does he talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent? How many times does he talk about parables about the kingdom of heaven? In chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. 
man finds it, sells all he has to buy that field so he can have that treasure, right? Pearl of great price. A merchant comes across this pearl of great price, sells all he has so he can have this pearl of great price. That's the kingdom of heaven. Gosh. What is the behavior that sets people of this kingdom apart from other kingdoms, right? We all have laws in our culture. We have laws here in America that are different than laws in other countries, right? And so if you go to a different country, you're like, oh, I can do that? Oh, that's weird. Or, oh, I can't do that? Wait, I could do that in America, right? And so again, he sets this up. What is this behavior going to look like? The Sermon on the Mount. Never heard the Sermon on the Mount referred to that way? He's saying, this is what will set you apart. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through Who will be great in your kingdom? Who will be great in God's kingdom? In our culture, who's great? Well, if you're athletic, super athletic, you're great. If you're super, super smart, you're great. After you get out of high school, right? You're super, super great if you're really beautiful, really attractive. Uh, what else? You'd be super, super great if you were pretty wealthy, right? And yet Jesus flips that on its head and he says, you know who will be great in my kingdom? The low. The person that serves, the servant of all. That is who will be great. Who will be blessed? Who's blessed? Probably a lot of the same things I just said there in our culture. Those are the blessed people. Or at least our culture would see it as that. But Jesus said, who will be blessed in my kingdom? Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, those will be blessed. The mourners, they will be blessed. The meek, they will be blessed. Peacemakers will be blessed. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. Those who are merciful will be blessed. Those who are pure in heart will be blessed. Those who are persecuted for Jesus' name, they will be blessed. Jesus definitely is this Davidic Messiah bringing a kingdom. This kingdom has endured for 2,000 years. It is still kicking, and it is still thriving, and over a billion people on earth still claim it as their allegiance to this kingdom. 2,000 years. I don't know world history super well, but I don't know of how many kingdoms can trace their lineage back to 2,000 years. Obviously, you can go through this, this, and that. But obviously, Rome is not no longer a thing, right? Greeks, right? It's all different now. But the church, Church of Christ, boy, that's still thriving. And that's still kicking. I love it. Man, let's see his connection to the exile. Did I give you that point? Jesus is the Messiah whose kingdom will endure forever. That's your point for that one. Connection to the exile. Again, a quick reminder of the exile. God made a covenant through Moses. He delivered his people out of Egypt. He made a covenant with his people. said, I'll make you a nation. You've got to obey me. All right? This is the, the law. This is the nature of our relationship. Like a marriage, right? Hey, we're going to be married. Okay, I promise not to, you know, cheat on you. Makes sense, right? Right? God does the same thing with Israel. Hey, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm not going to cheat on you guys. Don't cheat on me. What does Israel do for hundreds of years? They cheat on God. Oh, we're going to go, oh, yeah, God, we like you, but Baal over here, I mean, this, this statue over here is just, mm, attractive, right? 
I don't know what they were thinking, but they did it, all right? And they went through this cycle hundreds of years, and eventually God had said, all right, that's it. That's it. Exile. I'm no longer going to protect you from these other nations. They're going to come in, and they're going to punish you. And they're going to punish you, and you're going to get the picture, because you cheated on me. So I'm kind of going to let you have what you wanted, all right? You wanted to make this bed? That's fine, all right? Go sleep in it for a little bit, and then we'll see what happens after that, all right? So they were exiled. Well, as you know, again, Babylon took them over. Well, Babylon gets taken over by Persia, and Persia says, hey, you can go back, you can rebuild, you can live in your land, but we're still landlords over you. So in a sense, Jews at this time and Jesus' time would still say we're in exile. Yeah, we're back in our land, but we're not like the owners of this land. And again, over the 400 years of that, it's just passed off. They have different landowners, right? Persia leads to Greece. Greece leads to Syria and others. Then they have this short little stint where they're their own with the Maccabees. But then Rome comes in and smacks them around, and now Rome's in charge, right? So they're in exile. Well, look at this. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1 of Matthew. Right? Angel of the Lord is speaking to Joseph and says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves. It's like the, it's close to Joshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. Their sins, their sin is what caused their exile in the first place. So his deliverance, ooh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold on to that thought, all right? People's sin is what caused the exile in the first place. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Let's make the last connection, and it'll drive that one home. Connection to Moses. Notice in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Herod enacts a decree to kill all baby boys, two and under. What does that sound like? What story does that sound like from the Old Testament? Moses. You raised your hand. Well done. Thank you, Connor. <laughs> Moses. Interesting. Where, where was Moses from? Where, where did that all take place? What country? Egypt. Where did Joseph and Mary and Jesus travel to when that decree, when they heard about that decree? Egypt. Matthew, again, smart dude, right? Good at putting things together. He's very much drawing a connection between Moses and this Messiah. Messiah. Jesus is going to be a new type of Moses. Moses delivered his people out of, God's people out of Egypt from this world power. Jesus was going to deliver them out of the true power, the true enemy, sin and death. Jesus is going to be a new deliverer, a new Moses. And again, where God brings forth a covenant with Moses, Jesus is going to bring about a new covenant. Talked about that last night when we did Last Supper, right? Communion. Interesting. Again, to drive home these points, the exile, the true exile, is not that you had some other country lording it over you and ruling over you. But the true exile was a sin and our separation from God. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to deliver you out of this exile. Not by being a revolutionary leader, 
as they all wanted and that they're all expecting. But no, I'm going to take care of the sin that caused the exile. I am going to deliver you, and I'm going to pay for it. What a beautiful, beautiful thing, if I may hit on for one second, is that God was the one wronged in the covenant agreement. God held up his side of the bargain with Israel every step of the way. And he constantly was so gracious to them and constantly for hundreds of years took them back and forgave them for hundreds of years. He's the one wronged. And then he becomes the one that sets the wrong right by dying. Man, I can't think of a higher road than that. And that is love. That is. That just is love to the nth degree. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's amazing. Oh, it's God. Man, all of this is jammed into the first two chapters of Matthew. Matthew is making all these connections. The Messiah to Abraham, to David, to the exile, to Moses. Man, he's making all these connections. He's jamming this stuff in. And in my words, you know what he's doing? He's showing us, man, Jesus is big. This dude is big. This dude is big. Listen to this last little bit. C.S. Lewis drives home this point in the last battle, his last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. And he drives it home in this little uh, dialogue between Tyrion. Tyrion is Narnia's last king, all right? And he charged into this kind of this thatched stable in the woods, just charged in, barged in. And this is the dialogue he has in this stable. Listen to this. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Boy, it's beautiful. Man, Jesus, bigger than our whole world. Gosh, the Abraham promise-fulfilling man. The Davidic covenant-fulfilling man. The deliverer of the exile man. The new Moses man. The Son of God man. Packaged into probably a nine-pound baby boy, right? Something like that. Something bigger than the whole world. I started out with, he is still found by those who seek him. God isn't hiding. He's not good at hide and seek. You know, he's like my nieces when I play hide and seek with them. They want to be found. They, they make noises, right? They get out of their spots after two seconds, and they're like, here I am. It's like, okay, you didn't get the point of the game, but love you, you're cute, you know? Those are Manises. And I think God is that way too. He's too big to be hidden. He's too big. He's too massive. He is still found by those who seek Him. Of course He is. Because you can't miss Him if you seek after Him. And you seek Him with all your heart. The Magi found Him. The shepherds found Him. Pharisees found Him. 
brilliant people found him and humble, illiterate people found him. A tax collector found him. Prostitutes found him. Blind people found him. Widows found him. Prodigal sons found him. And undoubtedly, prodigal daughters. Sinners found him. Outcasts have found him. Foreigners found him. And he has been found by billions of people all over the world for the last 2,000 years, one way or another. And they have found him to be who he says he is. (laughs) An includer, a blessing, a king, a deliverer, a savior, a friend, a good father, a helper, our Lord. Seek and keep seeking. Seek and keep seeking. I promise you, you'll find him. His word says it, and he's too big to not be found. And if you have found him, keep seeking him, for you can find more of him in greater measure. One of the few things on this earth to ever be discontent with is how much you have of God. Always be discontent with that and always want more, because the more you have... (laughs) the more you have above everything that truly matters and everything that truly is worth. Amen. Merry Christmas. Stand with me. We'll close in prayer. (laughs) Father God, we thank you. Thank you for your bigness. Thank you for how great and big you are. You're not hiding. You don't seek to hide. God, you are standing there like a little girl saying, here I am. Here I am. Oh, God, help us to seek and to keep seeking with all our hearts, to keep going when it's tough, when it doesn't feel like we're getting anywhere, when we just feel like we're blind. We pray for your help, your encouragement, your Holy Spirit to energize us and help us to keep seeking, especially when it gets difficult, to keep seeking, keep growing in faith, in deeper faith and trust that you're there. Oh, we thank you for how great Jesus is and all these connections and all these things that he fulfilled. Gosh, the weight of the expectations. None of us even have a glimpse as to what that would be like be on Jesus' shoulders, and yet he did it. He lived it perfectly. Oh, we're so grateful for your deliverance, Jesus, from our sin, the forgiveness of sin for leading us out of that slavery to sin. We pray that we would be able to walk in freedom. God, encourage us, renew us this morning, this Christmas morning. Renew our faith in you. Renew our our seeking of you. God, renew our commitment to follow you, to obey, to do things your way, to live as these kingdom people with these very defining characteristics that really are not just to be different or not just to be weird, but really do bring life. They really do bring life to our souls and good, good things. God, we're grateful for you. Oh, we praise you. We give you all the glory. And Father God, We just love you and teach us to love you and teach us your love for us. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.
Amen. Amen.